The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. June Thomas welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Garrett Kaiser, whose book Privacy has just been published by Picador in its Big Ideas Small Books series. Garrett, this is a book that's a real conversation starter, so I'm very happy that you could come to the Slate studio in New York to talk about your ideas. Welcome. Thank you, and I'm happy to be here. Well, you begin the book with a provocative statement, one of many, I'm going to quote now, that privacy is a good thing for human beings is not hard to establish. Were it not a good thing, the wealthier among us would not enjoy more of it than the less wealthy. Uh, We'll get to some of your specific observations later in our chat, but perhaps you could begin by sort of describing the kinds of privacy that money can buy. What are you referring to in those sentences? Well, if you think of what you would do or a person like you might do, to enhance his or her privacy. Well, you might move. You might buy um, a house with more land. Uh, You might rent an apartment with fewer tenants, uh, with better walls. Uh, If you're concerned about online privacy, you might purchase certain security devices, pieces of software to put on your computer, which you also have. And if you feel your privacy is under direct and egregious attack, you might hire an attorney. And I've just made a short checklist of a whole bunch of things that people of certain classes can afford and people of other classes can't. Not only does one's privacy uh, depend in some ways on one's class, but one's enjoyment of the private life that privacy protects can also depend on class. So... You can talk about having a right to privacy that's protected by the Fourth Amendment that guarantees uh, some protection against warrantless searches of your house. But what if you don't have a house? What if you're sleeping under a bridge abutment? Or what if you do have a house, but you have to work three jobs just to pay for the mortgage? So you have an abstract theoretical right to privacy, but your actual experience of the things that cause us to regard privacy as a value is extremely limited. Well, so let's get to some of the specific concepts you discuss in, in the book, um, which, by the way, I think would be a great book club book because it's it's one that's full of ideas, as I say, beg to be discussed and shared with friends. But it's one of your early chapters is about how friendship affects notions of privacy. And when I was reading that chapter, I was reminded of the concept or the phrase of taking someone into your confidence, which implies trust on both sides. So the knowledge that someone will respect the confidences that you share with them is essential to friendship, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm so glad you raised that point. I've discovered in a lot of my discussions about privacy and even in my own thoughts about it, that we have um, an almost irresistible tendency to think of privacy in terms of our solitude. And certainly that's a dimension of privacy um, and, and one of the things that privacy protects. But 
privacy also protects what the legal scholar Kenneth Karst called the freedom of intimate association. Uh, it protects our ability to uh, take people into our confidence and to share things with them. In short, some would say to let down their privacy, but mm -hmm. I like to think of privacy as that freedom to decide what you're going to let down and what you're going to put up. Right. And that's one of the beautiful things about, uh, about being a human being. Right. And you don't spend too much time on the technological aspects of privacy, which I think is wise given how much attention other forms have given to that. But you do observe, it's a curious paradox of the times we live in where no commandment is inscribed in tablets of stone, but every one of our transgressions lives eternally within some data bank, effectively beyond the pale of forgiveness. It's the end of the quote. And that was very striking to me because it is very difficult to rehabilitate oneself these days um, because it's so easy to discover facts about strangers' lives. That's a very sort of striking um, comment on, on, on how we live these days. Well, one of the things that I try to do in the book is to take any of the received narratives or truisms about privacy or related to privacy and give them a little poke to see how solid they seem to me. And one of the truisms about our time in history and about the technology that plays so big a part in it is that we live in this postmodern era of constant reinvention, mm -hmm. constant fluidity, the opportunity to make and remake ourselves in countless ways. And I'm not denying that there isn't some truth to that, but there's another truth that goes along with it, which you've referred to, which is that our actions are increasingly caught and set in stone. I often think of those fairy tales where, you know, the wicked witch casts a spell on a party and everyone is frozen in time. And sometimes I feel that we are being frozen as well within what's often called virtual reality. You describe how when staying in a hotel where housekeeping will be visiting your room, people will sometimes make concessions to modesty. So covering up books and papers, closing the lid of your laptop, perhaps putting away some personal things. And it's not just for their own privacy that they're protecting. It's also the feelings of the person who's coming into the room to work. And again, just to quote you, you say, the protection of one's own privacy is often a gesture of respect to another person's sensibilities. I find that very interesting. Can you say more about that? Yes, I can. And I see that of a piece with what we were talking about before when we said that privacy not only protects solitude, but it protects intimate association. It protects relationships. In other words, privacy, which some would like to think of as, as an anti-social value, in fact has a number of social components, and indeed it depends for its very existence on a social contract. Privacy can be a gesture uh, of self-referential protection, but it can also be a gesture of respect for other people. Uh, maybe other people don't want to see my operation scar. <laughs> maybe just knowing I had an operation is enough for them. Maybe too much information is going to seem uh, is to make them uncomfortable. So I see that as a dimension of privacy as well, and part of the ethics around it. As you again point out, some of the great shared pl pleasures of life, things like going to the cinema, where you're 
in a space with hundreds of other people, the enjoyment of that depends on everybody treating everybody else with respect, behaving in a communal spirit, not talking or crinkling or texting. And I hadn't really thought of that as an element of privacy, but you made me kind of see how that does work into this this kind of arena of respect. And it's one of the most interesting things about this topic, in my view, and I really discovered it as I was writing the book, is all of the the multitudinous ways that privacy and the public overlap and interface. We tend to think of them as opposites. We've got public over here and private over here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in everyday experience, they are opposites. I'm private on this side of my front door. I open it and I step out on the street and I feel public. But if one looks at one's experience, often those two are working together and in the example of watching a film, they're supporting each other. It's a very public experience. Mm -hmm. You're laughing with other people. Sometimes you laugh harder because other people are laughing. But without some respect for the privacy of the other theater goers, that communal experience is not as rich. And another thing that's interesting is your observation that privacy isn't the same thing as secrecy. Now, Clearly, those words have different definitions, but they are often sort of mushed together inappropriately. How do you kind of see the differences between those two concepts? Well, I'll try to tell you how I see the difference, and I'll also tell you why I think the difference is often um, erased or smudged deliberately. Secrecy implies that you have something to hide, and it often implies that what you have to hide might be information that others have a legitimate right to know. Privacy doesn't necessarily mean that I have anything to hide or any need to hide it, but perhaps I wish to um, be alone. Perhaps this is something I feel you don't need to know. But when we take privacy and secrecy and use them as synonyms, then the implication, and it's an implication that's quite handy, for governments and businesses that would like to invade our privacy is that anyone who insists on privacy must be exercising a kind of dangerous secrecy. Mm. The idea that anybody who cares about privacy must have something to hide and that anyone who has nothing to hide therefore need not be all that concerned about privacy. How convenient and how presumptuous for someone to suggest that. But then there's what I think of as the most important section of your book. comes on page 20. When you define privacy, I'm going to give you another quotation from your own book. You say, I would ground privacy in a creaturely resistance to being used against one's will. You can change used to exploited if you like, but I prefer use and add the following qualifications. First, it does not matter how one is used, and in fact, the more intangible the use, as an entertainment for the curious, as a taste for revenge for the envious, as a shortcut in examination protocols for the busily overbooked doctor or nurse, the more likely one is to regard it as a breach of privacy, as opposed to the rougher uses of theft and assault. Second, it does not matter if the exploited person is aware of being used, though it certainly hurts more if she is. Now... Long quote, but full of, of interesting thoughts. I responded to that definition. I would say that I agreed with it too. But tell me what you like about that particular definition. 
Well, one of the things I like about the definition is that it, again, challenges a received notion, the notion that everything I do is okay as long as it's not hurting anyone else. And mm. the person who says that is usually getting to define the hurt as opposed <laughs> to the anyone else. I don't see it hurting you, so it must not be hurting you and therefore it must be right. Uh, and anyway, it's something I want to do. My definition says that if you spy on another human being and you use their exposure exclusively for your own amusement and the other human being is not even aware of it, uh, in my view and according to my definition, you've still violated their privacy and you have still demeaned that person. And in fact, one of the appealing uh, features of any kind of voyeurism is the utter lack of reciprocity, mm. which distinguishes all powerful relationships. And as imperialist countries can tell colonies what to do, but colonies don't get to tell imperial countries what to do. And if I'm looking at you without your knowledge and without your consent, I see you, you don't see me. There's a, an incredible amount of power, or at least the illusion of power. In some context, I think it's, it's actually a, a pathetic exercise in impotence and pretending it's power. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons I say in my book that I think voyeurism is so appealing to some people because they are in a, a social and an economic context in which uh, they've been rendered virtually powerless. And this is one of the ways that they can feel powerful. Mm -hmm. I can't get a coffee break that's longer than one minute. I can't have a lunch uh, where I work, but I can go online after work and look at the wardrobe malfunctions of the stars. <laughs> well, one of the words that you used in that definition that you gave them was interesting to me. You said used for your own amusement because one of the things in your sort of larger definition that, that made me as a writer and probably yourself a little bit tremble too is that word used because, you know, writers work, even when people are cooperating, um, can easily tend toward using people and exploiting people. I know you have a chapter about writers, but how do you sort of address that in your own life? By worrying about it all the time <laughs> yeah. uh, because... Um, and not only when you write nonfiction, mm. but even when you're writing fiction based on your experience, the potential to exploit other people and to think of them. And this is, I think, the, the, the rubric for all forms of exploitation. They do not exist as other people. They exist as appendages uh, of yourself mm. or according to your own needs. So they're not people. They're material. Right. I wish I could say that I have some ready formula for dealing with that. I at least try to be aware of it. I question myself uh, about it. I'm wrestling with that all the time, as I think other writers do as well. I may not have a quotation exactly exact, but in Slouching Toward Bethlehem, Joan Didion says, um, all writers sell people out. Mm -hmm. And... I think she was she was speaking from the heart with that. Indeed. Well, let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. Privacy isn't available on Audible, for the moment at least, but I saw that an earlier Afterword guest, David 
Troyer's book Res Life, An Indian's Journey Through Reservation Life, is now available on Audible, and I highly recommend it. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of the 100,000 books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get the credit. That's audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Picador has very kindly given us four copies of Privacy to give away to listeners and Garrett has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Privacy Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, September 7th, 2012 and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Garrett Kaiser, author of the new book, Privacy. Getting back to writers, as you discuss in your chapter on writers... There's an odd tendency for writers to share things in print that they wouldn't share in person with close friends. Why do you think that is? Is it about the performative nature of writing? Well, it might be about the performative nature, but it might also be the writer's sense that he or she is communicating this within a zone of privacy and that it's going to be experienced by people in that private zone that is reading. And reading requires a certain effort and a certain commitment and perhaps the writer feels, as I have sometimes felt, that people who've troubled to sit down and read my book as opposed to someone who might just be snooping over my shoulder (laughs) on a a bus are in a kind of conversation with me, Mm. that that is an extended freedom of intimate association in which I am comfortable. Right. It's a very intimate act to to read what someone has, has written and published. So how much privacy are we entitled to and should we expect when we step out of our front door? If I find myself in the middle of a news event, do I lose my right to anonymity? Well, how much privacy we're entitled to is... Um, an open question and one that has been part of our political conversation in this country for about a hundred years or more and it depends on when you you date the birth of, of privacy. Our entitlement to privacy is a value that's always going to rub up against other entitlements and other values. For instance, where does my entitlement to privacy and someone else's entitlement to safety such as a member of my household, have, my privacy ought not to respect my right to abuse that person. Mm -hmm. The entitlement to privacy also rubs up against the entitlement to know and the entitlement of journalists to report. And I don't have a problem acknowledging those tensions. What I have a problem with is when the tensions themselves are denied or when the tensions are used as a pretext for some hidden agenda. So people say, well, the public has a right to know this because we're a democracy, even though the spicy detail has nothing whatsoever to do with self-government, but has to do with selling news and making money. As far as the amount of privacy you have when you leave your front door, 
it may not be as much as you think it is. The Supreme Court has uh, often ruled in such a way as to suggest, as one privacy expert, Jeffrey Rosen, says that we have very little expectation of privacy in public places, including schools and the places where we work. And if we become involved in a news event, the principle of newsworthiness, which is something else I feel we need to look critically at, Mm -hmm. which often comes down to what news media and their corporate owners feel they can exploit. That concept of newsworthiness tends to take away your right to privacy, even if you were an unwitting victim of a horrendous crime and someone happened to be there to snap a picture of you when you were at your most vulnerable. Uh, At that point, you're not human, you're news. Well, another aspect of of what you just said also was, you know, this concept of lowered expectations of privacy at school or on the job. The fact that many of us are currently working more hours these days, more hours than ever, means that we have less time in that private sphere. You know, what does that do to us? Well, I think it does a few things. First of all, as I said before, it reduces the amount of privacy we expect at home. Mm -hmm. And this can happen not only through working more hours out of the home, but even through the devices that enable bosses to keep track of us within our homes and the expectation that uh, we will be online all the time. We will uh, have our cell phones turned on all the time. So we may be sequestered in a, in a seemingly very private place, but we have no real privacy. Yeah, we don't have control over our minds and our right. lives. Yeah. Right. Can but, I say one more thing about can, that? There was one more uh, point that sort of drifted out of my mind and <laughs> it came back in again. I think another effect can be something that psychologists have studied called learned helplessness, Mm. where you take an animal or even a human being and reduce their agency over their own life. You expose them to stimuli uh, over which they have no control, and eventually they come to, to feel and to act as though they have no control over their own lives. Even when they have a chance to walk out of the cage and it's unlocked, they stay there. That's been studied in human beings. It's also been studied for gender differences. And I think that one effect of the reduction of privacy is that people begin to feel that they have no control over their lives and over their private spaces. And I think sometimes they respond to that by this show of very shallow bravado uh, that says, well, I don't really care about privacy anyway. I have nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. They strike me as, you know, the young guy who loses the young girl and then says, well, I never really loved her anyway. Mm -hmm. It's almost a challenge for people to break down their limits, to break down their barriers and just to share whatever that person wants them to share. Well, I think, you know, and I think we should look at it compassionately uh, Mm -hmm. is is perhaps um, an attempt to pretend to a control that one doesn't doesn't have. Mm. And also our culture tends to reward expressions of that kind of edgy, valueless expression that says, you know, sure, trample on anything. It doesn't matter to me. So I, I think that, that that's partly what it means. And partly it has to do with the construction of a kind of ideology that I see as very fatalistic. I think we are in a period of 
of fatalism. I'm not a cultural historian. I'm not a scholar. And so I have to be careful of speaking too far beyond my pay grade. But I tend to to sense around me uh, this ideology of fatalism, especially around technology and around capitalist markets, around that big word global, which Mm -hmm. sometimes is said as though it were God. You know, like it's global. (laughs) There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, It's the forward march of technology. There's nothing you can do about it. This is the language of slaves. However, I do sometimes feel that there's a a response, particularly to technology, where people deny the fact that people do have some control over how much they share. For example, on Facebook, clearly, you know, these terms of service are continually being changed, but people still do have Uh, they do have some power to control what's out there. That's a response to that kind of fatalistic attitude toward technology kind of eating into our privacy, don't you think? I do. And I think we always need to be careful when we're on a high horse about (laughs) uh, overstating the case or, uh, which is really just a form of overstatement, constantly attributing it to other causes besides one's own choices, Mm. which is itself a form of fatalism. I think a first step toward any kind of liberation, and this is one of the things that makes any struggle for liberation so difficult, is to recognize one's own collusion with the Mm. oppressor. Mm. To say, what am I doing that makes this thing easier to be done to me? And so when I'm asked sometimes in interviews, you know, what can we do about protecting our privacy? One of the things I say is, well, we can look at our own behaviors and we can look at how easy we make it for others to violate our privacy. In regard to those controls, though, that you mentioned on the Internet and elsewhere, it's quite interesting that the way they're set up is that you have to take a step to protect the privacy. Mm -hmm. It's not set up in such a way that you need to grant other uh, entities permission to violate your privacy. The violation of the privacy is the given position, and the privacy is the default position, and that strikes me as quite backwards. But much more profitable. Absolutely. (laughs) That was Garrett Kaiser, whose book Privacy is available in bookstores now. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Thank you. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Dan Pashman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas. Mm-hmm.